Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. And we're going to look at this section out of, John, of, of Matthew. It's like me trying to call my children. I actually wanted Tyler, and I go, Kate, Hannah, Tyler, and finally got there on the last one. So Mark uh, 16, follow along as I read it out loud. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus in the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word, Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you would um, speak to our minds and our hearts and our will today. Give us a sense of yourself, that you might take precedence in all that, all that we do and say and are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I can remember a number of years ago, uh, I was watching, uh, we, just finished, we just finished watching this, um, this the, the uh, NCAA Men and Women's Basketball Tournament, March Madness. And years ago, I remember watching a series of games uh, because they were, they were on during the day, and, and, uh, and I, was, I, don't know, I don't know what I was doing, but I, I just happened to be watching a series of games. And in one of the games, I remember it was you know, on ESPN, I remember in one of them, um, partway through halftime, they made a big thing of it because they didn't really show the halftimes during during the games, but in this one they did, and uh, what looked like a student came out of the crowd and went down to center court. A, lo- a couple uh, uh, came down, and, the, and the, the man kneeled down in front of center court, and this is all, has all ha- happening on, on some level of national television. He kneels down on one knee in center court at whatever stadium it was in, and the woman is there, and she's sort of looking uneasy, and he pulls out a box. That's all I could see was a box out of his pocket. And then something happens, something, some moment of silence, and the commentators aren't really saying anything. They're just letting it, letting it occur. And he's holding up this box, which obviously we kind of get the sense of he's on one knee. He's got a little tiny box in his hand. There's a moment of silence. And then suddenly she, her hands go to her mouth, and then she slaps him in the face and runs off the court. That's not the reaction I think he was going for. 
That's not, it was utterly, it was, it was surprising and very, I mean, it's, I, you know, the commentators basically came on and they're trying to fill the air with something like what, you know, none of us expected any of that. You know, I think even one of the commentators made some comment about how unusual this was. I mean, I was even, you know, in another vein, I was at a, I was at a surprise birthday party for someone who came in um, and they came in and they were surprised, that shocked, and they burst into tears and ran out of the room. I, told, I had a friend who told me about a surprise birthday party that they had for a friend. It was a, a, a man that they knew, and he came in, and, uh, and, and as, as his want, they came through the door, and the group that he had been with that got him to the surprise was sort of right behind him, the group of guys that had gotten him there. And they come into the surprise. He gets surprised, screams, turns around, and punches in the face the guy that was behind him. Not the reaction you would expect for such a... All of these are supposed to be great moments. I mean, I get maybe why the woman slapped the guy in the face on the, on the court. I mean, that being proposed to center stage NCAA basketball probably wasn't her dream. That's not what she grew up thinking. That's not what she imagined the nights when she could barely go to sleep because she's thinking of all those wonderful things. She, just, she didn't fall off asleep going, oh, I hope he asks me at a basketball game. That'll be the story I'll tell in front of thousands and thousands of people in a national television viewing audience. That's what means something to me. No, I, I think he may have radically underestimated her in that respect. But when I look when I look at this description of this snapshot of the resurrection, Mark's snapshot of the resurrection, this little sort of selfie of the of the resurrection is not is not, it it is not the image I imagined it would be. It's not it's not the picture when you get when you flip through Jesus photo album that Mark gives us. When you flip through it, you go, "Oh, let me turn to that one." You know, remember that time? Remember the Easter? That's, that's not the, I didn't expect that. Number one, Jesus isn't even in the picture. Where's Jesus? And Mark wants, this, Mark wants us to sort of linger on the idea that the reason this picture is poignant is the same reason this cross is poignant. Jesus isn't there. He's not there because he told us he wasn't going to be there. The poignancy is his absence in a place of death. His poignancy, the poignancy is his absence on the place of crucifixion. His poignancy, the poignancy of the picture, the value of the picture is the un, is this sort of unnatural nature of it. Jesus is nowhere to be found in this picture. There's a number of elements of this picture that are paradoxically different than what you would expect which is one I want to draw our attention to a little bit as we look. There's, there, there's four things that I want you to notice in, about this Easter experience. Uh, this first Easter, this first Easter uh, from, math, from Mark's perspective, tells us four things. Number one, emotional complexity is normal. Let me say that again. Emotional complexity is normal. Number two, biblic, uh, belief is progressive. Number three, grace is unstoppable. And number four, reality is meaningful. 
Emotional complexity is normal. Why do I say that? Why do I say that one of the first things the first Easter teaches us is that complexity of emotion is a normal experience for humans in our broken condition? When these women went to the tomb, when, these, when they were going there, they were filled. The, the emotions that struck them on Easter morning was, were not, again, the emotions you would expect on Easter morning. You know, even this morning, Noah and I were, Noah and I were uh, getting ready to pray for the service today, and he comes in, and we wished each other both a happy Easter, and he says, how are you feeling? How are you doing today? And I go, well, it's complicated. Because Easter is full of a range of, motion, of emotions and experiences and, I, and, and thoughts, and it, and it makes the whole, it makes it more like a stew with all kinds of flavors inside of me and inside of our experience, and that's no different than the first experience in it. And, and, and hearing that their emotions were very complicated, they weren't filled with joy, number one. Easter, the number one, if you were to look at all the gospel stories, if you were to look at all the depictions of the resurrection, do you know what the most common emotion attached to them from the Word of God is? Terror. Some level of terror. In every gospel, the most common response to the, react, to the, to the resurrection, the most common emotion in these scenes is terror. Not joy, not satisfaction, not hope not celebration, not, not a sense of, of emotional ease and thrill and, and, and warmth. No, 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 terror. <laughs> and in the lives of these women, they felt powerless. Who's going to help us? Who's going to, we're, we're coming to do a job here. And, you know, it's almost as if they buy the spices. It, it makes a point of saying they bought them. They bought them, so they had to go first day of the week before sunrise, buy spices, gather all their, their stuff, meet each other, walk the distance of time, distance to get to the place. And it wasn't until they're almost there that then they go, how do we get in the tomb? How do, what are we going to do? And then now they're, now they're fraught with a sense of uncertainty, a, a, sense of, a sense of powerlessness. How can we do what we've come to do? And, but yet the, the driving force, why are they up this early on a Monday morning or on a Sunday morning? Why are they up this early to go? It wasn't because they wanted to go to some sunrise service and be filled with a sense of awe and satisfaction. It wasn't because church was happening. It wasn't for, because for them the first day of the week was their first day, was, the, was a work day, was a, was a regular day. Sunday didn't become Sunday until here, until the first Easter. What drove them to the tomb? Grief. Grief. They were mourning. And grief, is, grief always happens when we lose something. Grief, is, grief in, many, in many respects, is the natural response to loss, the appropriate response to loss. They were overwhelmed with a sense of what they don't have anymore. They were overwhelmed with a sense of, of how they, they were so sad about this experience. So that these women come to the grave, come to the first Easter, and their emotions are all over the map. Sadness, fear, terror, uncertainty, powerlessness. 
not and any of the what we might call the positive emotions are long, long far away. The, the, the idea of the idea of a sense of ease, of comfort, of joy, of satisfaction, of hope, all the things that would be powerfully, that we, that we in our modern day context attached to Easter are not there. And so this morning, part of what I want to say is the complexity, the diversity, the spectrum of emotion that goes through the human condition when, we're, when we are faced with Easter in our lives is normal, natural, and validated. They're wading through a variety of things that they think and feel about this experience, and it's okay to have to wade through all of those things. It's unexpected, and it, and it, and it can be, if we're not used to, if, we're not, if we don't have a sense of the validation of the complexity of human emotion, we think that we should be a particular way. We should feel a particular thing. We should have a particular idea, and it should be, it should be monolithic, meaning it should be one thing driving me. Rarely in life is that ever the case. Biblically speaking, the Bible talks about when we, when we are driven by a sense of God's grace and when he's changing us, it is always in, in the, he changes us and our experience is always at the level of complexity. The Psalms tell us this all again and again. When we read the Psalms, it describes a David a, who wrote many of the Psalms, a David who is simultaneously angry, Encouraged, sad, afraid, that there's a variety of of experiences that we go through and, and, and emotional responses. And so what that tells me is, is I, I cannot expect that it would be a monolithic, singular experience that, that my brokenness does not my brokenness and as a human means that I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not I, I can't expect I can't expect to have one overriding, saturating idea of love or joy, that it's going to be a variety of things until Jesus changes everything, which means that when Becky says to me, hey, Drew, would you be willing to come down and help me make the bed so that when Kate comes this weekend, she has a, a nice place to be? I, the, the, the answer to that question is complicated. Would I be willing? Okay, yes, I, I would be willing. The other question that's often, would, do you want to come down and do that? No, I don't want to. I'm, invi- I'm involved with something else, and, I, and I, don't, I can't stand making beds. But, but she's giving me the opportunity to engage with her, and she's willing to live and the, in a life that is still yet incomplete in its transformation. We are in process, which means that our growth and our change are going to be a little mixed, even in the good things that we do. And so these women do a good thing. They're, they're engaged with Jesus. They're terrified and sad at the same time. They're, they're intrigued and uncertain at the same time. Just not what you expected for Easter. And it's still Easter, though. That their emotional response doesn't, doesn't dilute the value of the concrete reality. Their emotional response to it doesn't change what actually happened. 
the emotional response they have does not bring anything to the equation. It simply enhances it. It simply it doesn't add to the content of what's going on. Whether or not they were sad, whether or not they were terrified, whether or not they were overwhelmed, uncertain, doesn't change the fact that the tomb was empty and Jesus is not there and he has, he has risen from the grave. The reality is still the same. Much as our emotions don't change the reality of a situation. But it helps me to be, be content with that process until the transformation is complete. As a matter of fact, the, the other thing that's sort of surprising about this is that, there's, uh, is that none of the heroes of our story are in this, are in this picture. And I'm, I'm using the word heroes in, in quotes a little bit there. We've been following... You know, if you, if you summarize a little bit of what Mark's t- teaching us, showing us is that the number one hero is Jesus, where he's the main character in this passage. But then Jesus gathered around him 12 other guys that you're constantly seeing, Peter, James, and John, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew. And all these guys are, you know, you're hearing these stories. And all, most of the pictures in this album, most of the pictures in these snapshots are include all of those guys. But in this instance, the highest direction, the, the crescendo, the ending of the story, when, you've, when, when it's the last scene of the movie, when, um, you know, when you see the hero and the heroine arm in arm, and the sun is rising, and the, and the picture goes to black. That's what you're hoping for. That's not what you see here. You see people who are on the, on the, the periphery of Jesus' mission, and women, and in the patriarchal society that was greatly misogynistic, <laughs> they, were, they were not really v- valued or viable. And yet they're the first witnesses. Which means that often, the power of God's grace often means that the people you thought were going to make the most impact don't make the impact you think they're going to make. But the people who you never thought were going to make the impact, they're the ones God ends up using. That's the nature of grace. The small overcoming the mighty. The foolish overcoming the wise. It also shows us that belief is a progressive process. Belief doesn't strike these women. It's not as if they're, they're coming out of their grief. You know, number one, they number one. Before we get into what their belief was in terms of it being progressive, that belief isn't all at once. Belief isn't I get it all at once. I I understand it and surrender to it all at the same time. That I was overwhelmed by the truth of it and I completely understood from the very beginning. No, it's progressive. It happens little by little. But the thing you need to see first before you understand that is that nobody believed this was going to happen. Nobody believed this was going to happen. Jesus consistently, even in, the, even in the pages of Mark, he tells his disciples four, four or five times, literally four or five times, and all the people who are following him literally said, in three days I will rise again. I'm, I'm going to die, but in three days I'm going to lay down my life, but in three days I'm going to take it back up again. He s- literally said those things, and Mark gives us those words four or five times throughout the gospel, throughout his life story. And yet, on day three, after his death, here we are, day three, nobody. Wouldn't you think? If you were there and you'd heard Jesus, and you're, you know, you know, you know, you're hearing his messages like we all hear messages, you know. When you hear a message, you really get it all like today. I mean, you're going to hear this. Are you going to remember it all? 
You're going to go home and you're going to have whatever celebration you have. You're going to tell you, oh, we had a great service this morning. And Drew's four points were boom, boom, boom. And he said his sub points were dust, dust, dust. No, you're not. You're going to get a piece of it. And so throughout the life of Jesus, he was telling them these snippets of his story, but yet consistently, three days I'll rise from the dead, three day, I'm laying it down, then three days I'm going to come back. And wouldn't you think that that, that that little piece lodged in their thinking, oh, three days, three days, oh, he's going to rise again in three days. At the time you thought, uh, he's speaking metaphorically. At the time you thought, eh, not really. I'm not sure that's very concrete. Hmm, you get it. And he says, three days you're going to rise. go, that's, that's odd. What does he mean by three days going to rise from the dead? Yeah, whatever. And then on to the next thing. But wouldn't you think now that he's dead three days, wouldn't you have imagined that somebody would have gone and gone, well, let me just, I mean, let's just go see. Wouldn't you think? Nope. Not anybody here. And you probably wouldn't have either. No one believed this was going to happen. They're here in grief. They're here in unbelief. They are not here to see if Jesus rose. They're here, to, they're here because they are certain he is dead. They're bringing spices. They're just trying to make death smell better. <laughs> they're not here because they anticipated what might happen. They're here to baptize what has already happened. And they're convinced that nothing is coming of this. And their belief is progressive and small. It starts small and builds. Little pieces. They don't believe, and then suddenly they're told a story that, that they see something that doesn't make sense to their minds, and, they, and they're told something that they can't imagine is true, and at first it terrifies them. Belief, belief isn't something that occurs. Most times, belief doesn't occur like, like a starburst, like, a, like an explosion. Belief often, most often occurs in the lives of people who are considering Christianity or who are progressing in Christianity. Um, occurs like a sunrise. Little light here and there. And the more you expose yourself to the light, the more you linger in that light, it gets greater and greater. And the more you explore it, and in this instance, the, 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 uh, the angel, the guy, the young, the young guy in the tomb, who we presume is an angel, he's dressed in white, He's there when he shouldn't have been. And the other gospel writers tell us that the person in there was, a, was an angel. He even says, come and see. He engages their minds. He engages their senses. He invites them to explore the reality of what he's saying. Christianity, the life of Christ, the person of Christ has never been has never been a religion where believe it just because I tell you so. Now, that's how it ought to be. God the Father, God himself, is not someone who should be trifled with. God should not be sort of, you know, the, our biggest sin is unbelief. Our biggest offense is that we don't trust the person who is telling us something that is real. That, that, is, that in essence, that is the most cutting, that is the most cutting unloving thing we do as humans is to not trust 
believe or, or re- rely upon the word of the, of the God, of the person who has given his life for us. But yet this same person, even though we're not trusting him in our unbelief, even though we don't take him at his word, he says to us, here's what's true. I'm going to tell you what's true. Believe me. Believe me. You can believe me. I'm trustworthy. You can take me at my word, but come and see. Explore it. Christianity is, is if not the only religion, one of the few religions that says, engage your mind, engage your senses. See if what I am not telling you is actually real. The angel says, come in and see it. See, the place where he lay is is empty. See, the clothes on which he was buried are are empty. See, come and see. And then he says, and then he's going to go before you to Galilee. When you get there, go there and you'll see him. Explore, keep exploring until you get him, until you find him, until because he's going to be where I tell you. He's going to be in that place, but don't believe me if you don't, if you don't want to, if you can't, if you can't keep exploring. You'll see him, you'll find him if you seek him with all of your heart, the Bible says. Seeking. Building upon the book the belief that we have, letting the small seeds of what we're uncertain about grow. And that, and that growth in faith, that growth in knowledge is lifetime. It's an infinite God with infinite character, infinite ideas and un- understandings, and we will never adequately understand him. But what the angel is saying is you know enough You know enough. You have enough knowledge right now in your fear, in your grief, in your unbelief. You have enough knowledge, enough, enough. You know enough right now to be used by God to expand the mission. Because he says to them, what does he say? Go tell. Come and see. Now go and tell. Take a look. Now go, set, now go tell. The message of the gospel always draws us in to send us out. Experience Christ. Experience Christ. Experience Easter. Experience the resurrection at this small level with, with scant understanding, saturated with a complexity of emotion and, un, and unbelief and, and loss, and yet you are still capable, able and valued to take the message to the next step. Go tell somebody else. The first witnesses, Mary, the Marys and, and Salome, the first witnesses did not see Jesus rise, didn't meet him first. Their first experience, their belief, their being drawn into Easter came as a, at a secondhand witness from an angel. And that message, that idea, that truth resonated within them and, with, and even with the complexity of their, of their understanding, even with the uncertainty on the one hand and fear on the other, but yet scant belief inside, terrified as they were, he says, you're able to be the first human witnesses to the rest of the world. A woman who 
a woman, Mary Magdalene, who prior to the change that Jesus made in her life, all she did was spew blasphemy because of the demons that possessed her. This, this peripheral character drawn into the center of the story and says, now go, rather than spewing the blasphemes of demon possession, now go spew the, the glories, the complex truths you understand about the grace of God, little by little, because belief is progressive. Easter also tells us that grace is, it, it's not, doesn't just make our belief progressive and our emotions natural that are complex, but it also tells us that grace is unstoppable. And where do you get that? What do we mean by that? Where, where do I, where, why do I say that the first Easter talks about how unstoppable grace is? Well, it's unstoppable in, the, in one respect because in, in the life of Peter, who days before abandoned Christ in such a visceral, vigorous, and abiding way, he ran weeping from a fire. He went, in the, in, it tells us in one of the Gospels that uh, he was around the fire and a little girl pointed to him and said, I've seen you with Jesus. And he says, no, and he used, he used uh, profanity. He said, no, I never knew him. I don't know who you're talking about. And it says, the writer also says that at that moment, Jesus and he locked eyes from across the courtyard. And Peter, this was his third denial in less than, less than a few hours. His heart was ripped asunder. And he ran away into the night. And I can only imagine how Peter must have felt about the grace of God in his life at that point. Must have felt like I'm, I'm gone. I've ruined it. I'm no good. Everything he ever did for me is lost. I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy, I'm unvalued, I have nothing to offer, I am no good, I am, I, am, I am too broken to be fixed. I take this wonderful stuff he's given me and all I do is deny him and then he sees me in that moment and, and I am so brokenhearted to think that I could ever be fixed and I'm just going to run from this place and hide in isolation and die a lonely, lost, broken man because there's no hope for me now because of what I did. And the angel says to, says to the women, be sure to go back and tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Why does he call him out? Why does he call Peter out? Why does he name names? Well, because Peter, Peter was the most unkindest cut of all in the life of Jesus. And what Jesus told the angel to tell Peter was, you're not useless. You're not too broken to be fixed. What you've done is not overwhelmingly uh, uh, destructive to what I'm doing. I can use even you. I can fix even you. I can redeem even you, that my grace in you is more powerful than your sin in you. 
I, my grace is unstoppable in your life and nothing you've done is going to stop the work that I'm going to do in you and in the world. And he even, we even see that even at the end of the story. It's the most, it's the most enigmatic, you know, this is another sort of unexpected sort of reality about the final picture in the album. Blink, 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 blink. You know, what, you know the, the, I remember when I think about all these snapshots of Jesus and the, and the album, I remember Becky and I, when we were putting together our wedding album, and I guess uh, brides and grooms do this now. You, you get the pictures and you put them into an album and then you're, you sort of, you, you get to pick the ones that go where. You know, and I guess the first one you want to be important, but then you want, you want the last one to be sort of that, the thing that's going to, you know, get them all. You know, it's the bride with the full veil on or it's the rings backlit or it's the bouquet, something. The last picture in Jesus' photo album, bling, 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 says, what's the final words? They said nothing to no one because they were afraid. <laughs> what? 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 You're all, it's almost you get to the end of the story and you're going, what? Mark? Mark? That's not, what do you mean? They were, they said Nothing. <laughs> Well, part of, the, part of the, the reason that that's so valuable is that it proves, it gives you a sense of proof of the concrete proof or the concrete truth of this story is that why would Mark end the story this way unless it actually happened this way? It's not, it's not inspiring. It's not emotionally inspiring to, to, you get to the end of the story, all these photo albums, all these little pieces, and you get to the end of the story, and the last one was, they didn't say anything because they didn't believe it, and they, weren't, and they were too afraid. That's not, that's not an inspiring ending, unless it was the real ending. And real endings are inspiring. Because this real ending says, because we have the benefit of not just having the ending, we have, we have the... We have the sequel. We, we know what happened after that. And even though these women kept their mouths shut, even though these women were overwhelmingly uh, terrified, even though th these women were, were struck with a, with a saturating unbelief, <laughs> their lack of doing... The, the, the story ends with them not doing the thing they were told to do. The story ends with sinners sinning. That's the end, that, and, and here's the thing, folks. That's the only ending to any human story. Sinners sinning at the end of it. But what that's telling me is in the real ending of a real-life experience, in this instance, God-ordained story is the same thing that's true in your story when your story ends or is in the midst of an ending where you don't do what you're supposed to do, where you're a sinner sinning, God's grace is unstoppable. The message still got out. And it got out and it exploded the world. And it changed the culture. You and I are a, you and I are a byproduct, are a consequence of the explosive power of the gospel in the first century. Their silence, their terror, their unbelief 
could not get in the way of what God was doing in his world. He transformed culture. He transformed and is still transforming the world by his grace. Nothing you do or don't do will ever get in his way in what he wants to accomplish in this world or, here's the amazing thing, or in your life. You, nothing you do or don't do, let me say it again, nothing you do or don't do can get in the way of what God wants to do in your life and through you in his world. Now, some of you who are listening very carefully and who are most engaged at this point might be thinking to yourself, well, then does it matter what I do, Drew? Does it matter then that I do... Yes, it matters amazingly. Yes, it matters tremendously. But the matter of it is complex, as everything else is. It's complicated. But what's more powerful than the complexity of what you do mattering or not mattering is that it can't get in the way of God's grace. It can't. God's grace, is, God's grace matters more than what you do matters. And that should free you to do powerfully, energetically, and with great intention all the things that God requires us to do, all the things that God wants us to do, to live by his design, to flesh out what he calls us to, to deliver the mission. It, that should free us because now I'm not pressured that, oh my goodness, if I do the wrong thing, if I don't do enough of the right thing, how much do I do? What I could mess up the whole thing. No, nothing you do messes up anything. Nothing you do can get in the way of God's grace. Nothing you do or don't do can, can foil his plans. So relax and let love change you and just go love. Complicated emotion, progressive belief, unstoppable grace. But the resurrection tells us that reality matters. What do I mean? What do you mean by reality matters? Here's why, here's what I mean by reality matters. Mark does not describe the story of Jesus that it's a nice emotional idea. Easter is not a nice inspiring story. It's not a it's not a wonderfully hopeful metaphor. It's not a it's not a message of love and truth and how, and how the best, if we live the best of humanity, brightness will result. That's not the message of Easter. The message of Easter is a concrete physical change, a concrete manifested re change in reality occurred that then produced an inspiring, hopeful story of, insp of inspirational truth. Yes, but it isn't just that. If that, that cannot be true without a reality, without a concrete, physical change. Jesus was tangibly, physically resurrected. His body was not physically present because it, was, it had risen from the grave. Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross accomplishes a forensic, actual, concrete change in the annals of heaven. Whereby... The guilt of the accused is assuaged because of the payment of an innocent on their behalf. The resurrection validates that Jesus is a truth teller. 
It validates that he is actually the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings. It validates that what he accomplished at the cross is real and tangible and usable. It is not counterfeit money that no longer has value. It is of substance, and because it is of substance, its truth is a full-spectrum belief, not just Words of love and truth that are hopeful and inspiring. That fills me with a sense of warmth and drives me to a new motivation. It is an actual, tangible, concrete reality. Which also means that concrete, tangible reality matters to Jesus. That his world, that his culture, that, his, that, that, that the activities and, and tangible things in this world matter. Christianity is the only religion that says that. Every other religion says we live in this hard, horrible world. And one day, if you believe in this religion, whatever it was, you'll be taken out of that world and placed in a nirvana world. Only Christianity says we live, as the, the author, uh, the author Anne Lamott, which I've referred to before, she writes in one of her books that we are, a, we are an Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We are living in this real world of Good Friday darkness, of Good Friday brokenness, of Good Friday pain and anguish, of Good Friday loss. That's the world we live in. And Christianity is the only religion that says that we will not one day be taken out of Good Friday world and placed into the resurrection heavenly world. What Christianity presents is that the heavenly resurrection world will come to the Good Friday world and transform it. All of its bad dreams will become untrue which means the investment we make in Good Friday world, the investment we make in this broken world matters serenely and, 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 and supremely. Jesus invested in the world. He, he brought hope. He brought transformation. He healed sicknesses. He, overco- he overcame conflict. He, he changed He changed the physical reality of the world in which he lived, not because he was just simply putting on a show, but because he was making an investment in the future change that was coming, that is still coming. One theologian was asked, I think it might have been Martin Luther. I forget who it was. One of you will Google it and tell me afterwards. I didn't research this. It's It's just occurring to me. Martin Luther, I think, said that he, when he was asked, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow? If you could know that Jesus was actually his second coming, the end of history would happen tomorrow, what would you do today? He says, I'd plant a tree. I'd plant a tree. He goes on to say that the reason he planted a tree is because he knows, he knows what an unredeemed tree looks like. He says, and I want to see what a redeemed, heavenly, restored, resurrected tree looks like. That's going to be amazing. And he wanted to make that investment in the here and now. Because grace is complicated, it's unstoppable. Because it's 
our understanding of it is progressive. But because a, re, a, a change in reality has occurred, it's a concrete, real change. It means that we can make concrete, real change here. That the movement towards a better world, toward a better life, is a result of the resurrection. It's of a, it's a, it's of, it's of a, necess, a necessary extension of the resurrection that we would invest in the world we are in. Because Jesus did. Because the resurrection changes that from a broken old human body to a new one and to a, and to a world that is changing. Heaven is coming to earth. Heaven is on its way to earth we can invest without fear of loss because of the resurrection. Bringing that Easter sense to a Good Friday darkness in our world. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you make your kingdom come to earth not to lead us out of it, but to engage us within it. Father, I pray that as we come with complicated emotions today, that that concrete real change would affect us so deeply that we would grow and grow and grow, more progressively understanding who you are and of the nature of how unstoppable your grace is in our lives to accomplish all these things. Not even death, not even sin, Despair, guilt, uncertainty, terror gets in your way. Do that in your world. Do that in our hearts, in and through and by us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.